Hello and welcome to the MD DDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight on episode 21, we're going to be wrapping our series asking the question, Who is God? We've looked at eight different attributes of God from A.W. Tozer's classic book, The Attributes of God, and tonight we're going to wrap with a discussion on God's holiness and God's perfection. I look forward to spending about 45 minutes with you tonight. If you have any follow-up questions after this, find us on Facebook, MDDDS. We have a page and a group we'd love to talk with you there. Or find me, Kyle Fagala, and we can talk about that. But let's go ahead and jump into the lesson now. All right, so we're going to talk about holiness and perfection tonight. And I'm going to start, if I ever get a chance to talk about art or history, I do, if you figure that out. Um, so I'm going to start by talking about Da Vinci, and the interesting thing about Da Vinci, uh, well let me just ask this, has anyone seen His Last Supper before, have you actually seen the... Like a picture of it or seen... Yeah, I meant like a picture, no, not a picture of it, like the, the, the real yeah. thing, the fresco, no. It is in Milan, you're right. I didn't get to make it, we didn't go to Milan. Um, well, apparently it's enormous, like there's like a doorway like underneath it, it's like very large. And uh, I think they've had a hard time like keeping it maintained, as frescoes usually are. Um, but apparently, uh, in, in person, it's really magnificent. I mean, it's a classic. We all know what it looks like, and there's been other versions of it, too. Uh, what's interesting about it is da Vinci was super talented. He was an inventor. He was really did a lot of the earliest work on anatomy. Like, he would slice up cadavers and learn things about them. His inventions, I think, are some of the more, more interesting things. He, like, invented in a way like the first tank and some flying contraptions and helicopter. I mean, he's a really amazing, highly, obviously intelligent guy. You know, they estimate IQs for these kind of people and his is like off the charts. Obviously also a very well-known painting, or painter rather. Um, but he actually had difficulty with The Last Supper. They said that he had a hard time painting the faces. And so I would assume, I've never you know done an oil painting or something, but I would assume if you're doing a person, the hardest part is the face. There's a lot of detail there. Um, and it said that he ended up leaving the faces for the end, and he did all the faces except for one, and the face that he left for the end was the face of Jesus. He said that he uh, held off and kept holding off because uh, he didn't feel like he was worthy to paint the face of Jesus. And I think that's a good thing to think about as we're talking about attributes of God. We talk about every week, you know, I don't feel like we're worthy to talk about this, and I don't feel like we can really capture it completely, and of course we can't. But at least we're not being asked to paint the face of Jesus. Like, how would you even approach it, you know? So sure enough, kind of similarly, he kept holding off. He was unwilling to approach it, but of course he knew that he must. And so it says, in an impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. And his quote is, there is no use. I can't paint him. All right, so I like that as an allusion to this series. And again, I think we've given this preface every single week, but um, there's no use. I can't paint him. I can't describe the holiness and the perfection of God, but I'll do the best I can. Tozer says it like this. He says, I think that same sense of despair is on my heart. There isn't any use for anybody to try and explain holiness. The greatest speakers on the subject can't play their, or, or they can rather play their oratorical harps, but it sounds tinny and unreal. And when they're through, you've listened to music, but you haven't seen God. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of scripture, and we almost have the right number to, to knock these out. We've got another one later that somebody will pick up, but and if you'll read Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Okay, and Lauren, Psalm 22, 3. Yet you 
more holy and throned on the praises of Israel. All right, David, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, and then uh, Caitlin, Isaiah 6, 3. Okay, so just a selection of verses, just obviously talking about the holiness of God, and so that's a real, obviously, biblical concept. Um, so just kind of defining that and showing where that shows up. But uh, let's talk about kind of what is holiness and some words for that. Um, you know, I could kind of ask you to throw out some words that you think of. I guess, what, do, what are the words that come to mind real quickly when you, when you think about the word holiness? Yeah, and that's your blank. Good job. Bonus points to Will. <laughs> That's always the what comes to mind because I think that's like the literal, you know, that's what it means. It's kind of like I was in your class when you gave this. <laughs> oh, you were? Oh, no. No, well, let's just stop the tape right now. Yeah, that's great. I forget to ask you about the rhino. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay, all right. We'll keep going. <laughs> I feel like, hey, were you in the class? I listened to the podcast. Oh, you did? Okay, well. Should we just, <laughs> should we call it? No. <laughs> no, just do it. Okay. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Okay. Y'all are going to know it all. Um, so set, set apart, reverend, sacred, worthy of praise. I like something that is different, something that deserves our awe. I always think of, when I think of holiness, I think of the Old Testament. I think, I wish I understood the Old Testament better and kind of why things were the way they were, but I do think things are made very clear. You're only seeing things in part in the Old Testament, but like it's almost like the, well, I don't want to say that in the wrong way. In some ways, it's almost like the kindergarten version of kind of what we see in Jesus. Like it's, it's very like we put God in this little box and, you know, you're, you're communicating with God through these sacrifices, but you have to do them over and over. Like, I, you know, so with holiness, it's like he literally goes into his like room, not just the holy room, but the holy of holies. I, I just think that's interesting that it was so like almost like hieroglyphics, like it was like you could read the drawing, you could kind of you know see what was going on. Um, and so then I guess this question of holiness, which we asked, but I'll kind of read what he says here: is holiness means purity, but purity doesn't describe it well enough. Purity merely means that it is unmixed and nothing else is in it. But that isn't enough. We talk of moral excellence, but that is inadequate. To be morally excellent is to exceed someone else in moral character. But when we say that God is morally excellent, who is it that he exceeds? The angels, the seraphim? Surely he does, but that still isn't enough. We mean rectitude, we mean honor, we mean truth and righteousness. We mean all of these, uncreated and eternal. All right, and so he makes the point that we can't understand holiness. And uh, the question is, well, why is it hard to understand holiness? And you could read ahead, but that's not cool. Dave, why can't we understand holiness? Or maybe you think we can. Any true attribute of God is hard for us to get our minds around because He's infinite, right? So, um, it kind of goes back to saying, like, we're, we're kind of imperfect artists trying to, like, wrap our minds around something so magnificent. So, can we even understand God? I, you know, it's hard. I guess it's not very insightful. But I, I think trying to, trying to truly understand what the greatest possible being would be like 
how holy he would be is, is tough. Even recognizing that it's tough, I think, kind of answers the question. Like, that's why he's set apart. And then, the next, I mean, I guess the, I guess the answer is risky. Yeah, um, <laughs> you don't see holiness. We don't, we don't live holy lives. We don't. Certainly, our culture is not holding up holiness. If you're ever around somebody that's kind of a, a holy person, almost it feels kind of yeah. special and almost awkward, you know? Yeah. In the same way, if you're on someone that's unholy, like, it's, like, awkward. I remember, like, the first day of dental school, you know, I'd always been in Christian education all the way through high school at Crow's Ridge and then in, into Harding. And, of course, not everyone's holy, right? But the first day of dental school, I just remember people, like, openly, you know, using four-letter words and stuff. It was like, whoa. <laughs> He's like, we're going to go out and get, you know, smashed. And I was like, oh, I <laughs> It's like, I think I'll go home. Like, it was just like, it, it's so like, like, um, like starkly, like, you know, dark or like evil, like in a way. And I was like, oh, you know, and the same way if you're around someone who's really holy, like I remember like Gerald Howard, he was like a chorus director, you know, like just a, you're just like a really like holy kind of guy. It was like, you, you just would all of a sudden you turn into like a little choir boy around him, you know, you're just kind of like, you know, it's. So it's true, like you get in the presence of something on either side of that, and it's like, it's uh, unsettling in a way. You sort of recognize the difference that exists, you know. Um, I think it's a couple things. It's that we are, we are not holy, so we are different. So I think anything, anytime you're on something that's different, you feel different. <laughs> I think also it's just that we, we, we've not seen it. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, when you hear like sports commentators or sports writers talk about athletes that they got to witness in their prime, like, you know, talking about like Muhammad Ali or like, you know, and you watch video of him boxing, but it's like the way they talk about it, it's like, you should have, you know, heard the sound of his punches or, you know, like, or it, just the sound of like a ball going off a bat, like if it was like Babe Ruth or something. I mean, like people that like witness that, and of course you can't now, but like, you know, they'll talk about it, you know, oh man, they were just amazing. You should have seen, you know, Larry Bird play in the Boston Gardens. It's like, you know, I can't, yeah, I can't witness that, you know, so it is, it's kind of different. Um, of course, what he says is that you know, we can't understand holiness because we're sinful, uh, we're fallen beings, and then this quote, even our whitest white is dingy gray, which I think is good. There's a biblical verse about our, it's the thing about the rags, you know, like even our best offering is sort of is rags to God, effectively, so. Um, I like this quote that he talks about is, is that we spend most of our time around flawed people, and so we come to expect that. That's sort of normal to us. And he says, our noblest heroes are soiled heroes, all of them. So we learn to excuse and to overlook and not to expect too much. We don't expect all truth from our teachers, and we don't expect faithfulness from our politicians. We, we quickly forgive them when they lie to us and vote for them again. This was in 1950. We don't expect honesty from our merchants. We don't expect complete trustworthiness from anybody. And we manage to get along in the world only by passing laws to protect ourselves, not only from the criminal element, but from the best people there are who might, in the moment of temptation, take advantage of us. And he says the whole, this kind of world gets into our pores, into our nerves, until we've lost the ability to conceive of the holy. Still, I will endeavor to discuss the holiness of God, the Holy One. We cannot comprehend it, and we will certainly not define it. So, I love that. I, I love this idea that you see this, and I'll just call him by his name, you see this with Donald Trump and his, his big followers, and you would see this if Hillary Clinton had won president, and you know, it's not a, just a statement on Trump, but you'll see people move in their opinions as Trump says something new. 
So it's like, well, we stand firmly against this, and then if he changes his mind, well, you know, it's like, yeah, it's like a sail, like moving with the wind. You know, it's just, it's. But it, part of the reason is, is that we don't expect truth. You know, we don't expect consistency because people aren't consistency consistent. Even our best people. Um, all right, so here is my rhinoceros. <laughs> example. Um, so I do want to talk about, I think it's a good example for why we can't understand holiness. And it, it does remind me of this. And this is Durer's rhinoceros. So if you had listened to the podcast, you didn't get to see this. So here it is in all its beauty. Um, and so this is uh, Durer's rhinoceros. It was a 1515 woodcut. And it was a German painter named Albert Durer. And uh, it's based on a written description and a brief sketch by an unknown artist. Uh, and there was a rhinoceros. The first time a rhinoceros had come, I think since Roman times, it was in 1515, and it went to Portugal. And this German painter, this Durer, he didn't actually get to see it, but he read about it and he saw like a simple sketch of it. And I, and I said this in class when I talked about the sketch. It's terrible. I mean, it literally looks like if Libby drew a rhinoceros, and it's awful. So he didn't have a whole lot to go on. Um, but the interesting thing about this is... Uh, how relevant it was. And so I do want to read kind of what they say about it because it's not entirely accurate. It's beautiful. I mean, it's really well done. But it says that um, it's not entirely accurate. It depicts an animal with hard plates that cover its body like sheets of armor with a gorget at the throat, a solid-looking breastplate, and rivets along the seams. Uh, uh, Durer places a small twisted horn on its back and gives it scaly legs and saw-like rear quarters. Of course, none of these features that I just mentioned are present in a real rhinoceros but he wouldn't have known. Um, and despite this, this is what's most interesting, is it became very popular, was copied for hundreds of years, and it was regarded by Westerners as a true representat representation of rhinoceros into the late 18th century. Um, and it has also been said of this that probably no animal picture has exerted such a profound influence on the arts. So this is like, in some art historian's mind, the most influential animal depiction ever. Now, as I say that, that seems, well, surely that's not true, but I don't know, maybe it is. Um, and of course, what's interesting about that is, is it's not accurate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not even a rhinoceros. Of course, you show that to anybody and they'd say, well, that's a rhinoceros, but it's only, you know, a so-so uh, representation. And so in a similar way, uh, this is an image drawn by a man who had never seen a rhinoceros. It's sort of like me describing God to you. And it's sort of like me describing God's holiness to you. I'll do the best I can to paint an accurate picture of that, but I'm never going to hit it perfectly. Um, and so I'm going to give you a less than perfect version of God's holiness tonight. All right, so there's two words for holiness. Um, there is one that usually describes God. And so God is the holy one. That's a word uh, used for holy. There's another one, and this is your blank, holy by association. So words that are associated with the holiness of God, but aren't that you know pure holiness of God. So we have things like holy ground, holy Sabbath, holy city, holy people, holy works, holy Bible. What's the blanket? Uh, holy by association. And so I, I think that's interesting. It's another thing about you know Greek and Hebrew, and and I guess this is true of English, but it seems like with some words it's not. Seems you know, like a word like a love that needs multiple definitions. We don't have it, which is frustrating. So obviously, like Greek has like four different versions of love. We get one, and we get that one wrong. 
but holiness has two. And I, I just I wish there was a degree of separation with our words for holy. Um, but knowing that that's the case, uh, you know, I guess the question that's interesting is how we make that make sense of that when we talk about God. And I'll kind of jump to the chase on that. I just think that if the best that we could ever be is a word that doesn't mean true holiness, I mean, I can't, it kind of tells you. It's like both that we'll, we'll never be as holy as He is holy. Like we don't even get that word, right? So we get like the second place word already. And that second place word is only that word because of our association to God, right? So a Bible without God isn't a holy item. It's already only a holy by association, you know? And if it didn't have anything to do with God, then it wouldn't even be that. Um, same thing with like holy ground. You know, it talks about when Moses is out there and you know, he's walking on holy ground and, and God is in that place. The ground is not holy. It's just dirt. You know, it's the fact that God is there that makes it holy. So I think it's kind of interesting. Even the Sabbath. You know, I mean, we can... What's funny about a Sabbath is that that's, a, that's a, you know, an idea that's, that God has come up with. Obviously, Jewish people have, have held on to that and have, have honored that day as holy. Um, and it's funny, I've seen like a lot of just, you know, life management people, secularists, kind of pushing people back to sort of a day of rest, which is kind of ironic because it's something that God understood and that, that wanted for His people. Um, but certainly the, the day itself is not holy. To, to rest on a day is not holy. It's holy because God instituted it, right? So uh, our next blank is that Tozer says that many Christians are too, the blank is familiar with God. I quote David in my notes here. I said, as David says, Jesus is not our homeboy. Okay. Um, I don't think that anyone that lived in Old Testament times would have spoken of God as their homeboy. You know, I don't think they would have said Yahweh was their homeboy. They wouldn't even say that, that name. I actually have a Jewish friend, and I use the word Yahweh, like, sort of like in, a, like in a, almost like an olive branch to him. He was like, well, we don't say that. And I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I was like, okay, you know, YWH, my bad, you know. Um, but, you know, it, it's only out of familiarity in a very casual sense would we ever think to say that of God someone who's holy and who's perfect. In the same way, to be fair, of like Gerald Howard, like he was always Mr. Howard. I would have never called him Gerald. You know what I'm saying? Partly because that's a tough name to say. But, um, and that's true of like doctors you really hold in a high regard. They're always doctor. Even after you're out of school and they'll tell you, call, you know, call, me, call me Terry. It's like, no, no, it's your, your, your Dr. Trojan. You know, it's, you're always... And the same thing should be true of God. I think if we're kind of too colloquial with God, it sort of represents maybe a disconnect, I think, in how we regard Him. Um, and what he's meaning here is, is that many of us are technically Christians, and we think we know God, but in fact, we only know a sort of caricature of God. Okay, He says this, If I haven't felt a sense of vileness by contrast with that sense of unapproachable and indescribable holiness, I wonder if I've ever been hit hard enough to really repent. And if I don't repent, I wonder if I can believe. He tells a couple stories. He tells a story about Martin Luther. He tells a story about Bishop Usher and how he says of Usher in particular that um, I guess it, he would have been around 16, 1700, something like that. And he was saying of him that people said he was the holiest person that they knew. And yet he would spend an hour every day going by the riverbed and he would pray about how sinful he was and all this kind of stuff. And so he was saying that if you really understand God, 
you, you become almost harsher on yourself because you realize how different you are and how holy you're not, you could say. Um, my question, and I don't know how much discussion we'll get, is, is it, are we guilty of this today? I think, are we too familiar with God? And uh, I guess, what, what does that mean to you, or what do you think of when you, when you hear that? Do you feel like you're too... I don't know. I don't know the right way to say that. I, I, if I'm speaking to myself, I don't know that I don't respect God or I don't think of Him as being holy. I just, I, I think honestly, I'm, it's a different thing. I just don't think I think enough about God. I, mean, I think I respect Him, but obviously I don't, you know, in a lot of ways too. Matt Chandler has this like uh, principle he talks about the, uh, the over-churched. Most most churches have a mission like the unchurched, and that's part. He says that's part of our mission, but another part of our mission is to the overchurched. So you like a, you know, it's trying to have like a gospel church in hmm. the middle of Texas is kind of like, well, every, you know, everyone goes to church. But his point is like everyone's been going to church forever, and no one has like believed the gospel and heard like you know what what the church is really about. So I think it's possible to kind of be absorbed in the church culture, you know, and kind of get the this is how I'm supposed to dress. This is kind of how you walk in with your family to church. And these are the you know the words you can't say. And these are the topics you're supposed to have conversation around. And you kind of can do the church thing, but not be not know anything about God. Hmm. Uh, I think that's that's more than possible. Those those the uh, the inspiration behind the the topic, the lesson title for the gospel you missed in youth group. So I think that same principle is kind of what happens in youth group. You can be like youth group all-star and kind of miss the whole reason why we should have youth group. Hmm. I think that's exactly what he's getting at. I like that idea of over-churched. It's interesting. I think, too, I, it hmm. reminds me of there's a, I had a really good friend in high school and, you know, I grew up as a missionary kid and I went to high school with a bunch of missionary kids. So I would say, like, over-churched probably would have defined us in a lot of ways. But also, like, exposed to a lot of different world religions and how different um, maybe kinds of Christian groups revere God's holiness as opposed to, like, maybe how we do in, like, Western evangelical Christian circles or whatever. Um, and so when he left high school, he went and spent a year at a monastery, like, with monks and... Um, I think really to like grasp and be in awe of God's holiness and because I think uh, we don't like you said I don't know that I spent enough time really thinking about it and so I think sometimes in western evangelical Christian circles we kind of like like you said just kind of do church but but we're not really like spending enough time thinking about God and his holiness yeah I think there is some Usefulness to familiarity with God. Like when I think about, it, like when I pray, like that's my conversation with God. Is like if I say, like, dear God, and I agree, so I go into something like I would a conversation with a friend, and I feel closer to Him than I would if I'm dear Heavenly Father, like my kind of mm-hmm. friend, and I, mm-hmm. and I then I go into reciting the the church version of what I've been taught. So like there is familiarity helps you connect with the rest of your friends. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, and I, even the idea of like <clears throat> having too much church, like, well, it's not all bad. You just say, yeah, I think there's different types of familiarity, different types of overchurched, you know. I think it's to whatever degree we're familiar with God and, and thus we stop caring about who he really is. Same thing, though, like if you're in a relationship for a certain number of years and you're comfortable or you're familiar and you no longer care about the things that, that matter, um, you start, you know, you stop paying attention, I guess. I think that's maybe more what he's at. Same way with church. Like if we, it's like as a student in general, it's like once people rap with medical school, they're like, never have to take a test again. I don't have to learn anything. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you actually, this is when you begin learning. Like this is when you really should start, you know. Um, it's why they call it practice of medicine and practice of dentistry. Like this, you're just you're still learning. Um, and I think the same should be true of once we're baptized. It shouldn't be like, whew, I'm done with that, you know. It should be, well, this is when I start to sanctify and, and learn how to really be who I need to be. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, the word familiar, it's imperfect, just as over-churched is imperfect, I think. So let's move in. Oh, good. No, you're good. Which Will, when Will was talking, I thought, like, this is kind of like a marriage, right? So familiarity is a gift, right? Because, like, Lauren and I can, like, instantly have deeper, more meaningful, more honest conversations than I can have with anyone else because we've invested, like, all this time becoming familiar with each other. But it also makes it possible to, like, I can, like, kind of take advantage of and appreciate my relationship with her in a way that I might not, a friend that I hadn't seen in six months and I had di- had dinner with her, I'd be, like, so excited. Like, this is our one chance to have dinner because it's so routine. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly what's the... That's uh, really good. Mm-hmm. What the lesson is, but I think it, that familiarity can be two sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the lesson is, is that we should never lose our, you know, what the meaning of like holiness is. We shouldn't lose our ability to view him in reference or in awe, uh, reverence rather. Um, like that should always kind of make us bow our heads in a sense, you know. So if people in the Bible saw God the first time and they couldn't lift their heads up at him. They fell to the ground. It shouldn't be that the tenth time they saw him that they're like, what's up, dude? You know, like, you know, I mean, it should be, should always have that impact on you. Um, and so if we reach a point with church where it just doesn't have an impact on us, either there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong with how it's being taught and maybe both. Um, so let's move on to fire. Uh, so the fiery holiness of God. I like this section because this is not at all the way that I think of God, but I think it's also another kind of emphasis on how we don't think about really the holiness of God. I think we talk about the holiness of God a lot, but I don't think we really, I don't think we want the holiness of God for one thing, but I don't think we really talk about it. But anyway, so Tozer talks about this picture of God as fire. And I asked this question kind of jokingly, if you were to describe God, okay, if we were to describe what are, the, what are the top ten attributes you think of when you think of God? Mercy and grace would be up there. Um, other words that we've talked about would be up there. Omnipresent, omniscient, you know, um, omnipotent, whatever. Uh, fiery would not make the top ten, all right? Fiery might crack the top 50, maybe not even the top 100, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's a word that shows up. So God is, here are your blanks, called a consuming fire in Hebrews, and he's called a devouring fire in Isaiah. 
Those are not seeker-friendly terms. Okay. Uh, there is not a church with a postmodern name in inner city Austin talking about the consuming fire of God and the devouring fire. Sorry. Um, but these are biblical words. So God spoke to Moses, you know, also kind of along these lines of fire. He spoke from the burning bush. He led the Israelites as a pillar of fire. Tongues of fire descended on the heads of the disciples in Acts 2. Um, and this same awesome fire God will one day dissolve the heaven and the earth. You know? Um, and I think the point is that we should be in awe of this devouring and consuming fire. Kind of another you know, few examples here is, this is interesting because some of these we forget, but Isaiah describes a throne with seraphim above it, each with six wings covering their face and their feet, and then the last two they fly with. The high priest, you know, he walks trembling in the Holy of Holies once a year. I talked about this in class, you probably remember this, but they tie a rope around his legs so that if he messes up, they can pull him out. I don't know if in the Bible they ever say that that ever happened, um, but just even that you'd think about doing that. Um, my joke is it's like when you meet your in-laws the first time, just you know, put a rope around your legs so they can pull you out of that restaurant or that house. Um, Moses hid his face in the presence of God. John fell down and, and when he met God, and, and Paul went blind in the presence of God. Right? Y'all had okay times meeting in-laws. Is that what you're saying? Oh, uh, okay. I remember the first time. Your parents were really nice, actually, so it was all good. Um, well, yeah, because y'all were like inf- infants or something. So I guess kind of some questions along. It's also C.S. Lewis calls God the supreme terror, which is interesting. Do you think of God this way is my first question. So I guess, do, do you think of God in these terms at all? My answer is no. It's not fun to think about. Um, how, here's, I guess, the better question is, how can we see God as a de- de- devouring fire or a consuming fire and still draw near to Him? Is it like this is like a difficult attending you have that's, you know, He's hard to please and... So then you want to please him more? Is it that, or is it different than that? It's different than that. I mean, that's not like a terrible analogy, I don't think, because it's like, you know, you know that that the devouring fire part of God is going to consume everything in your life that, like, is not holy. And so I think there's a part of us that wants to hold on to those things in our lives because we have a sinful nature and we love them and we're attached to those parts of our lives. But I think that you you still kind of want that. Like, you want to be holy like God is. Hmm. So you, like, want Him to, like, burn all that away. Yeah. I think that's really what that's all about. The things He's devouring, the things He consumes are things that need to be devoured and consumed. And that's not all of us, right? But it's a good part of us. Um, and it's all of this world, basically. And I think that's whether that's a literal thing that God's going to burn everything up or it's just a figurative thing to say that the things of this world are not going to last, whichever that is and whatever you believe, that's the point of it. This is that we have imperfections that need to be burned away and that that will be painful. It's the same analogy of like, you know, God prunes us or something, you know. I mean, there's, there is suffering that has to take place or there is a change that has to take place for us to become what can be in the presence of God. So we have to go through that 
process. So it is sort of this thing of like drawing near to God means that we have to give up things to do it. So I think we draw near to him by accepting that we need to go through that process, maybe. Am I missing it? No. You can add a... No, I think that's right. Okay. All right. Well, let's go into perfection. Um, there are plenty of verses calling God perfect. We won't read through a bunch of those, but just take, take my word that there are. Uh, Jesus was perfect on earth. We know that. Um, and it's funny, that comes to mind a lot of times when I think about Jesus. I, I've been listening through the Bible, and I'm in Matthew right now, and there's this verse where he, he's talking to this, I think maybe a Samaritan woman, and she's got a demon-possessed child, and he's like not having it. Like, I don't know if she's, she's Samaritan or she's something else, but I think Samaritan. And he talks about how, you know, the bread is for Jews and not for Gentiles. And she says, well, even the dogs eat the scraps from the table. And he, like, commends her for her faithfulness. And I'm like, was Jesus perfect there? Because he was kind of a jerk. Like, he, he like, kind of, is he crossing the line? Um, but I think, of course, he's doing it in a way that's sort of joking. But um, because God is perfect, he's holy. It's at least part of that. So I think a holy being, a truly holy being is... Is perfect and vice versa. Uh, perfect is another word that we don't have a perfect definition for, but it's the highest possi- possible degree of excellence. And so, you know, God is without flaw. Um, excellence, though, is really not ideal because it means being in a state of excelling, which implies a comparison to something or somebody. So even Sean White in, you know, the half pipe is the most excellent, okay? He's the, he's the best of the best in the world for the third time and that's amazing you could safely say perhaps he's the best snowboarder to this date that's ever lived okay you could say that and be pretty safe in saying that still he got a 97 in his best run right so it's not perfect very excellent it approached perfection but still not perfect okay um so excellent would be like an excellent musician is better than another musician excellent film could be better than another film an excellent baseball pitcher could even throw a perfect game, right? We have perfect games. Um, and a perfect day or meal could be better than any you've ever had. But, of course, these aren't really perfect, you know, truly. Um, there's no degrees in God. God cannot be compared to anything. So, Will, you thought I was going to leave you out, but I didn't. So, Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? So, that's a rhetorical question. You don't compare him to anything, right? Um, And so simply, you know, God is God. He's an infinite perfection of fullness. And we cannot say that God is a little more or a little less. Your blank is that he's incomparable. That's another lesson for tonight. It's not incomparable. It's incomparable. There you go. I think this is why... The uh, second commandment is, Thou shalt not make any graven images. This is, you know, it's not a call to not have art. Like, there's people that fought against, you know, like, depicting Jesus in art or God in art. Because, like, well, that's a graven image. The point of a graven image was not that it was art. You know, it was, it was made to worship, you know. And so, of course, then this becomes a sermon fodder for every youth group ever that we talk about. Well, what are our idols? What are our graven images, you know? And certainly there are things we worship, our phones and ourselves and our cars and whatever else but um, the problem with a graven image is that we compare it to the perfection of God 
And so if we put anything up on a pedestal, as we, as we tend to do with idols, we're putting that on a level and we're comparing it to God. Okay? All right, so he talks about gains and losses, which is interesting. We'll kind of we'll speed through this, but it kind of comes out of left field as he's talking about, but he does kind of wrap it up and make it make sense. But it's just funny that he's talking about positive gains. This is to his church, and this is probably why he brings it up. But uh, in 1950, things that he thinks are good for the church, he talks about increased church attendance, more people identifying themselves as Christians. And truly, like when we look at the history of all this, like I think that the church did boom during the 1950s, you know, it was in a really strong place. Unfortunately, it's not stayed that way, but um, an increase in the number of Christian schools, colleges, and seminaries, dramatic growth in Christian literature, an increase in the popularity of the gospel, he would say, better communication, radio, TV, telephone, these are all new ways that they could communicate the gospel, and then great strides in worldwide evangelism. He says, we cannot deny that a lot of good is being done and the gospel is being spread around. Um, for the fun of it, let's look at what are, what are some gains in 2018. Like when you think of how the church, in a global sense, is is better now, what does your mind go to? Well, I think of like honestly not in the United States, but I think of like China and just Asia in general. Like the the gospel is exploding, the church is exploding over there. So we don't see it because we live in like the post-Christian West, so to speak. Um, usually Europe is talked about as post-Christian West. It's kind of hard to say what, what is America in that context, but I guess the Christian West or how, whatever word you want to use. But Christianity is actually growing faster now than at any time in the history of Christianity. But, but if you just had like a map and look at the earth, the, the growth of Christianity is all happening east and south. So it's all like... Africa, South Asia, India, China, and um, it's just like exploding. Um, so like the uh, China is going to be the largest Christian nation in the world by I think 2040. So they're going to be sending missionaries over here. I was going to say, you know, yeah. they're going to start sending them here. So as the church is kind of, <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully we have a revival, but you know there's some signs of kind of some twilight in the West. It's like raging like a fire in the It's a reminder that the church is not God is not depending on a restoration of traditional values in America to save the church. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, <laughs> he's or legislation, a yeah. Much bigger plan. Interesting. So anything else come to mind? I mean I feel like some of them are so painfully obvious. Like obviously the internet would be a I don't know if we can still stake claim to that since it's been a while, but certainly like social media, any of that kind of stuff, like those are those are gains, even though there's negatives to them. I mean, that's certainly, I think, a gain for the church. Maybe it's more negative in your mind than a gain, but certainly in the same way that the telephone, the TV, and the, and the radio, like he was talking about, those were gains. Certainly the internet, social media, and all that kind of stuff is. You may have another one, but um, now I think maybe the more interesting thing is what are our, our losses. And so I'll, I'll tell you what he says the losses for the church in the 1950s were, was that even though these great things were happening, we, we've had a loss in religious fear leading to flippancy and familiarity towards God that our fathers never knew. 
Um, what would you say are some losses in 2018? <laughs> that same thing. Yeah. It's funny seeing somebody in the 1950s say that. Yeah. I think just like distraction and then I think maybe like ha having too much knowledge available to us so easily I think keeps anyone from really pondering the truth and so I don't know that anyone's really listening anymore because yeah. I think that everyone has the answer yeah I think information overload is, is definitely one of those things is that you, know, you have access to any book you'd ever want where there's a, an image of how many sheets of paper could fit on a CD drive I don't know if like Bill Gates was standing next to it for like an article or something. Somewhere in my mind, I've seen this, and it's it's just stacked, you know, several stories high, next to this little CD disc, and it's like you just now you have the internet. It's just just so far beyond that. It's not even funny how much information's out there. They talk about YouTube and how much video is being uploaded every second, and it's even in let's say a minute, it's more than you could ever watch in your lifetime. You know, I mean, it's just there's way too much info out there. And so that is, you know, as I see the internet as a gain, it's as much as a loss because we just have so many competing opinions. And I do think people are at a point where they just, they're not pondering anything deep. They're not asking any real important questions. I think the question they're being asked is, are you still watching Netflix? <laughs> like, yes, I keep watching. Um, those are the important questions, you know. Um, so yeah, we're kind of in the same place. I think that's a good one. I think we stay busier. We have the ability to, to stay, at least to our perceptions, busy. I think we spend our time on a lot of stuff that's not important, but we, we stay busy. We've always got something to distract us. That's, that's really bad for us. Um, he says this, too, is that we're too culturally influenced. I think our church is too culturally influenced. I think we're reaching what they call syncretism, which is the, the, the marriage of culture and church or religious belief. So now we don't know the difference. Just like you'd see like in the first century, you start to kind of marry Greek and Roman traditions with the church. Or even on the other end, you have these Jewish traditions that you're trying to put into the first century church. And that's just not, not the way it should be. So now we, we try and filter in ideas about tolerance or acceptance into the gospel. And you kind of get a, a less than version, you know. Um, he says that, Tozer says that the world is too much with us and I think that the world is too we're too focused on the world when we make decisions about what Christianity should be today okay so another thing we got two more little things and then we're going to kind of wrap up is uh, a section he talks about it on no awareness of the eternal I think this was sort of part of the discussion that we had on the infinitude of God I think that's part and parcel with this conversation of we don't think about infinity. We don't have a concept for that. And the same way, I don't think we really think about eternity. I think we really just think about, even if we think about the past, we think about the future, we're talking 10 years max, right? We're focused on ultimately a very small scope of time and a little funnel of time. And so he says that uh, a lot, another loss in the church is an awareness of the invisible and the eternal, uh, consciousness of the divine presence and divine majesty. Uh, so I think our culture has a very short attention span. 
we want things now. That is definitely a defining characteristic of, of now and our people is like is a decreasing attention span. Certainly we're more impatient. We want things now. We get mad very quickly. Um, and so it's hard for us to then care about the eternal or things that will happen you know, billions of years from now. Or, to be frank, things that happened a billion years ago, like, well, they don't care. You know, it's like, I want my Starbucks now. Um, and the same way the invisible. Like, we, we are very scientifically minded, even if we don't, couldn't pass a scientific class in the 10th grade. Like, we as a culture are very scientific. Like, we want to be able to, things to be proved to us. Um, so how could we care about the invisible if we're only, you know, focused on the tangible and the things that are right in front of us? And so I, I think that the internet having all the answers, I think, gives us this false sense that we had the ability to answer any question that we could ask. But because of that, it kind of turns off in our mind the need to ask questions. So it's like, well, I don't need to ask that because the answer's already been decided. You know, and science has decided that well, there's no need for a God. It's like, woo, you know. Um, here's a little quote here. Uh, is, is that the modern Christian, and this is again Tozer, so the modern is it's kind of funny, but the 1950s Christian has lost a sense of worship along with the concept of majesty and, of course, reverence as well. He has lost his ability to withdraw inwardly and commune in the secret place with God in the shrine of his own hidden spirit. It is this that makes Christianity, and we have all but lost it. Added numbers, yes, but lost fear. Multiplied schools, yes, but lost awareness of the invisible. Tons of literature being poured out, of course, but no consciousness of the divine presence. Better communication, certainly, but nothing to communicate. Evangelistic organizations, yes, but the concept of majesty and worship and reverence has almost left us. So that's certainly an indictment of the modern church. Is we've got basically all these highways inside our churches. We've got these programs. We've got people heading this direction and that direction. We've got... Uh, missionaries all across you know, the nation. We've got all these classes that meet and thousands of people that come to this sort of nexus that is the church. And yet it's almost like there's nothing inside the cars traveling on the streets. And it's sort of like you're, you find yourself, like sometimes when you've driven for like 30 minutes, like I don't remember the last 30 minutes that I was driving. Like what have I been doing? There's like a phenomenon for like what that's called. But I think in some ways our church is like that. It's like well, I knew I was supposed to be driving, but I forgot where I was going, you know. Hmm, you know. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty true. All right, so let's wrap up with this talk on uh, external gains, internal losses. This kind of brings home when he was talking about gains of the church and losses of the church. And he says that there's an inverse relationship between, here's your first blank, external gains and internal losses. So you guys are smart. So you know what an inverse relationship means. So... If we get more external gains, we get fewer internal, uh, wait, is that wrong? Should be a direct relationship. Yeah, it should be. Sorry. I think you're... Is it external gains and internal gains? That's what it should be. Yeah, sorry. Well, look, this is on a lesson on perfection. I've got a mistake. That's funny. Um, Let me say it like this. Uh, when our gains are mostly external, we start to have losses that are internal. Okay, so that would be a direct relationship. I will fix that. So now that I've thoroughly confused you. The point he's making is, is that he thinks that as we get more numbers, as we get better communication, as we get all these good things, internally we lose. 
That's what he would say. Now, I don't think that's like a mathematical equation. I don't think that's necessarily true. But obviously, there's truth in it. I think that as, and maybe a better way to say it is, is that we more focus on our external gains, then it's, it's assured that we're going to have internal losses. I think I would say that. And so oftentimes our focus on the externals is to the neglect of our inner relationship with God. And we talked about this at the little men's Bible study that we had. We're sort of doing this like, it's a relatively surface level lesson, but it's good. I think there's some depth to it. But if you ask a question of, well, how do I stop being impatient with my wife? Or how do I stop yelling at my kids? I think there's a very practical approach that would say, well, you need to you know, just count to 10 or you need to meditate in the morning. You need to wake up and exercise and you'll have more endorphins. And then because of that, you'll be you know, less apt to, to you know, go off on the handle, like yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of practical ways. There's like, I'm gonna, you know, in my mind, I'm gonna say, I love my wife, I love my wife, I love my wife, and then I'll be nicer to her. Yada, yada, yada. But the truth is, is that you're focusing on external, you're, you're focusing downstream, David would say. The issue is really upstream. It's, I need to love God more. I need to focus on my relationship with God. I need to focus on my relationship with my wife. That follows. And if I do all those things, like, I'm gonna be a much better person. Um, but we try and fix things way downstream. So like from a medical standpoint, it's like you could give me an example, I'm sure. But it's like you can focus on things outside of the heart. But if it's really the heart that's broken, like you kind of need to get in there and fix it yeah. maybe. Um, and an x-ray would tell you that. So there you go. I think, too, that the longer you keep putting like a patch on something, like the sicker the problem gets. Like the loss mm-hmm. gets worse and worse. And so, you, you know, because you're like, oh, I fixed it. Yeah, and a lot of good examples about that. It's like with a car that you don't really care about, you you don't really need to replace the thing that really needs to be replaced. You'll just basically put duct tape on it until, and I've done that. Now that I have a nicer car, I don't do that. Like I'm gonna get the oil change, I'm gonna take care of it. Um, here's a question, and we kind of already talked around it, but do external gains have to be accompanied by internal losses? Do you think those are one and the same? Like he kind of sets up that there's a direct relationship there. Is that necessarily true, though? Just as I, as I hear you say that, like, is it guaranteed that internal gains will produce external gains? Uh, I would think so, yeah. Yeah. Do you think you could have a, an internally healthy church of 50 people? Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. Doesn't So I, I guess it depends on what you how you define yeah I think some of these things were certainly independent of the church I'm not trying to trap you in an answer I think like that's the right answer but I don't I don't know I mean I think it's it's worth kind of thinking through a little bit more just to to realize I think a lot of things that we use as sort of self-fulfilling prophecies of that you know if as a church we were focused on external gains and we do these little things to kind of organize the church in such a way that, hey, we've grown by 200 people. Sometimes we're like, look at what we did, you know? Um, in the same way that I think a church could be overly pious and think, 
well, we're going to get all this right and then maybe not grow. I mean, there could be other reasons. I mean, I think a lot of these things like increased schools, college seminaries, more literature, uh, radio, TV, telephone, some of those things weren't necessarily linked. And maybe they were. I don't know. Um, I think that regardless, I think we we have to be more focused on the internal. I think Anne, I think Anne made the, I mean, that's the big point mm-hmm. for sure. It's like what we should pursue is internal gains. Like, and I think often if we pursue that, we kind of get external gains thrown in with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe always. I'm not sure what I think. Um, but when we, it is possible to grow externally and, and kind of just be hollowed out. You know, I mean. I, we could definitely give examples of like the you know, televangelist church you see, and you're like, man, there's 15,000 people there, and you hear the sermon, and you're like, I don't even trust Christianity. That's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, some like pop culture thing. But of course, there's some, some mega churches that I have a lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. They're preaching the gospel a lot better than I am. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what are external gains in Christianity other than numbers. I mean, I think it's, I guess what we're always reaching for is, I mean, it's, you almost feel like, I mean, it's most souls saved, I guess, I mean, really, and I mean, you know, and then I think on top of that, it's the, most, the greatest possible discipleship. They always think of like Piper, that God is most pleased when he's most glorified, right? I guess, like, most glory to God, I, but I mean, how do you measure that, you know? So, so it's certainly possible that God could be most glorified in a setting where there are just 50 people in a church and it's mm-hmm. staying at that size, but that doesn't seem right. Like, it seems like a healthy church internally should be growing. Seems like it. Maybe not. Maybe in, maybe in the face of a culture that's not in line with that, maybe it doesn't grow. I think there, I don't know. there's huge challenges to keeping a, a large church healthy internally. So I think, like, how, how can you tell? Yeah. You have 1,500 people or whatever, that those people are all internally healthy. I mean, and it's not up to the church to necessarily, like, you know, do that. So I think maybe, I don't know, maybe God doesn't want huge churches and maybe He wants small groups of 50 people that are really, like, making sure that they're, you know, growing internally and staying healthy because you can do that better in a smaller group than in a huge group. I don't know. I think probably the, the the role of the church is to is to not allow it to get so flippant or familiar. I think it's from the from the preaching to the leading to even the way that we discuss things with each other is that if we know that a brother's caught in sin, we we call them out on it. We we work through it with them. And I think that that's that's the role of the preacher. That's the role of the elders. That's the role of the leaders. That's that's the role of all of us in a, in a kind of a family situation to say. This is not okay. You know, if we find out that someone's cheating on their wife, it's not like, well, am I going to say anything to her, you know, her or him? I mean, like, you have to approach those things. Um, and so I think if in a church of 1,500, you have multiple people going through those things and no one's going to say a word to them, that's not good. And from the pulpit, we can't speak about those things that are difficult, that are they're hard. If we can't talk about the fiery nature of God or the fact that we should hold him up in reverence, like, that's kind of scary, you know. And so I think it's it's just like we've seen the teachings of all these leaders throughout the Old and the New Testament, like to remind people of their sin and to remind people that God is holy and who He is. Like 
we have to be kind of teaching these things, learning these things. Um, all right, so he says this, I believe that we can never recover our glory until we are brought to see again the awesome perfections of God. Um, and so his, his point about this whole gains and losses thing is, is that um, he says that focusing on one's internal relationship with God will usually, usually, he says, result in outward growth, but that focusing on the outward result usually leads to loss, both, in, both inwardly and outwardly. So I don't think it's like a rule. It's not like a one-to-one. But I think typically what he's saying is you focus on internal, good things are going to happen. The opposite, it'll, it'll end up falling through, which with most of these big churches, like look at all the major like preachers on TV from the 80s and 90s, like most of those guys are in prison. You know, most of those guys have lost all their ministries. And so a lot of these churches we see with 15, 20,000 people eventually going to fall, whereas you see a gospel that has been preached for 2,000 years, it continues to grow. Um, I think that's kind of more valuable. All right, so I want to end with uh, this prayer by Tozer, which I think is good, and we can kind of focus on this. And this is the end of this series, so maybe a good way to wrap up, but it's a little bit long, but I'm just going to read it. So, O God, our Father, how easy it is to backslide, to be living and yet be dead. How easy it is to become part of a troop of jolly church people, chattering and giggling while the world grows old, the judgment draws near, hell enlarges its borders, and the Antichrist prepares himself to take over. While the world is unifying itself and getting ready for a king, O God, my church is playing and saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have nothing of need. We have more people attending. We have more money than we've ever had. Our churches cost more and our schools are full and our programs are many. We are forgetting, O God, that the quality of our Christianity has been greatly impaired. O restore again, we cry, restore again to thy church her vision of thee. Restore again to thy church her sight of the great God. Show us thy face, thy lovely face, a permanent view of majesty. We will not ask for a transient beam. We want a permanent sight of thee in all thy wonder. O God, men sin on and on while they smile at religion. They laugh about it and tolerate it. But O God, we have lost our fear and our sense of majesty and our awe. Give back to us, we pray, the majesty in the heavens. Give back to us the sight of majesty again so we can know how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright, how beautiful, thy majesty seat, sorry, thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. Send us forth to pray, to walk about knowing that we are in a garden indeed, even as thou didst walk in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam hid. Oh, how many of us, Lord, hide behind one thing or another because we are not morally and spiritually prepared to come out and walk with thee. But Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Moses looked upon thy face, and his face did shine. O oh God, send us not only to make converts, but to glorify the Father and to hold up the beauty of Jesus Christ to men. All this we ask in the name of our Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so thank you for tuning in for five weeks on Who is God? If you've not picked up the book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Tozer, I highly recommend it. There's a lot more that we couldn't cover from a book like that. It is a book that has influenced, uh, you know, 60, 70 years of Christian preaching. So I think there's a lot that you can really gain from that and a lot that's being discovered even today in 2018. We will go on into a an outreach uh, group next week that we probably won't podcast. We may podcast that and then we'll uh, head into an apologetic series afterwards that has uh, been just wrapped in our class and it was very excellent. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we hope to see you at those podcasts. Definitely come see us also Monday nights, 7 p.m. at my house out here in Germantown. We'd love to have you here. Tell some friends about it. I think it's a really great opportunity to learn more about Jesus and uh, to, to learn more about God. 
like we did with this series. So hope you're having a great week. Be blessed this week. We'll see you soon.